Welcome back to another episode of the King's Pulse Podcast presented by the King's Herald. My name is Brendan Nunez. Got Brian West on here as we always do. Recording this right after the Spurs game. Five games in a row of W's for the Sacramento Kings. How you feeling, Brian? I'm doing great, buddy. Uh, I think I've fully calmed down from the trade deadline. Uh, two very fun Kings victories like in a row have been uh, fully settled off I am uh, a good basketball. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. I'm very much with you. Uh, yeah, like I said, at the start, five wins in a row, seven of eight right now. We've seen the streaking Sacramento Kings before, and just like last time, it is primarily on the shoulders of De'Aaron Fox. Man is playing out of his mind. Um, uh, the Golden State game was a career night. Conference Player of the Week. Western Conference Player of the Week, and extremely well-deserved. And I'll get into the week stats in a second, um, but... Golden State game, career high, 44 points, 16 of 22 from the field, 9 of 10 from the free throw line, by the way, 7 three-point attempts, knocked down three of them, um, extremely impressive, and then, you know, the next game, he goes up against Cleveland, and in that one, drops 36, um, perfect from the free throw line, only four attempts, 15 of 24 from the field, even though he only knocked down two of his eight attempts, love to see him throwing up eight three-pointers in a game. Um, I think I said six assists, one of them being that full-court pass to Harrison Barnes that was just phenomenal. I mean, that was – I think that that – I didn't watch the bogey one live against the Lakers. I watched it on a replay or, or a couple hours after it happened and knew that something happened, so I was already somewhat ready for it. So this might have been my favorite Kings game winner. So far. Um, You know, I was watching the bogey beats the Lakers live. So um, that meant a heck of a lot to me. I mean, just having a game winner against the Lakers itself in the context of uh, basketball history makes that a better shot for me. Yeah. Um, And I mean, beating, beating the Cavaliers on a buzzer beater doesn't hold the same sway. But that all said, that was probably, as a basketball play, the most beautiful game winner I have seen from the Kings. Just the whole court on a dime, Barnes' smooth turnaround, smacking uh, Colin Sexton afterwards. Yeah, yeah, who was just talking shit the play before. Yeah. (laughs) The entire Kings bench just mobbing Harrison Barnes. Um, I mean – for a guy that we spent the last two months trying to trade, I will say that it is the the one great thing about keeping Harrison Barnes beyond the fact that he's a pretty good basketball player is that you can just tell how much this team fucking loves him. Yeah. He's, he's such a key part of this team, and they were so happy to celebrate for nothing more adorable in Tyrese Halliburton's rookie year than him sneaking up on Harrison Barnes and dumping water on him in the post-game interview. That was great. So a lot of good vibes out of that one. Definitely. It was a it was a blast for sure. And then they play San Antonio tonight. Like I said, we're recording this right after that game. And this was one where the whole team it really 
showed up in this one. Healed, Holmes, and Fox all topped 20 points. Harkless had 13. Terrence Davis had 14. 14 from Barnes. 15 and 10 from Halliburton. Um, also 12 boards from Holmes on top of the 23 points I mentioned earlier. This was a team performance. And, like, this showed some of the new depth that was acquired, and it was felt in this game. Absolutely. Um, Kings just, aside from a six-minute stretch uh, that spanned the third quarter to the fourth quarter where they kind of looked like the Kangs of old, uh, it was an end-to-end competitive game and uh, just a demolition by the end of it. I mean, this Kings team suddenly looked deep. I mean, Shezzy Metu hit a three-pointer. Um, Terrence Davis, Mo Harkless. Yeah, that was cash. Um, and uh, Terrence Davis, Mo Harkless, DeLon Wright, all looking dang good on both ends on the court. Uh, it was amazing to see a Kings bench unit come out there and, like, actually have a whole bunch of winning moments back to back to back. It was great to see the Kings have so much depth. And I think you bury the lead here. Your buddy Robert Woodard comes in and has that crazy block in the final minute. I do think, uh, you know, I said this on Twitter, the one downside of these uh, new additions coming in and immediately earning these minutes is that it's going to absolutely destroy any chance of Daquan Jeffries and Robert Woodard getting minutes. But when they play like this against a, I think the Spurs are sixth in the West right now, and they're one of the top 10 defensive teams in the league, King shot 56% from the floor against them and 50% from three-point land. I mean, yeah. that's just a massive offensive game against a team that had been pretty decently defensively minded. So um, this was one of the most fun games of the season. Uh, just all good vibes coming out of this one too. Yeah, I think it's also notable, um, you know, there is a little bit of shooting luck going into this game. This is one three-pointer made under their uh, season high, but you have to have the personnel for it, and they do. Um, and, you know, they, they did before as well, but I think Davis was really felt on the offensive end. Um, so specifically Davis on the offensive end. And, um, yeah, maybe let's just get into these new guys' additions a little bit before. Um, a couple other things that I know we want to touch on this episode. But I want to say, well, I guess we'll start with Davis because I was touching on him a little bit. I think he's going to be intriguing on the offensive end of the floor. Um, you know, we saw him be pretty efficient in his uh, freshman or freshman year in his rookie season in Toronto where he made all-NBA or all-rookie second team. Um, and, yeah, 38% from three on that one. And you saw some of that confidence in shooting tonight. But I think that there also will be frustrations with him of trying to do too much on the offensive end of the floor. Like the guys they got are bench players. You know, there's going to be positives and negatives for each one of these guys, obviously. But I think that Terrence Davis is going to have nights where he's an efficient spark plug on the offensive end of the floor. And there's also going to be moments where he maybe tries to do a little bit too much there. But this game against San Antonio was definitely more of the former. 
Yeah, I completely agree. On paper, Terrence Davis is a great addition to a Kings bench that desperately needed another uh, kind of microwave score. Uh, and he really filled up the box score tonight. 14 points, three rebounds, two assists, two steals, uh, three of five from deep. Um, you know, it, it, it just – we can't have a Terrence Davis conversation without saying again that it does stink to cheer for him because there's still the looming NBA uh, and Players Association investigation into all that stuff that went down in his New York civil case last year, or uh, I guess it got dropped earlier this year. Um, so, like, it, it, it's easy to get lost in the basketball moment of, dang, this guy looks like an exact need for this King's bench, and at the same time, I, I feel like I almost have to reserve a little bit of my enthusiasm for how we could really fit with this team because it's just, it stinks. Um, but it's something that uh, we can't let ourselves forget. Yeah, it is uh, definitely something that, you know, is understandably attached to him and um, yeah, definitely not something that's, that's going to be dropped or anything like that. Um, but yeah, um, with only so much information on it, it's a little difficult to, uh, comment on it to a certain extent. But yeah, um, you know, on the basketball floor, yeah. potentially, um, impactful player there, um, as a bench piece and, and to move on to Lizalon Wright, I think his, I mean, it's just so clear that Wright is a massive defensive upgrade over Corey Joseph. Absolutely. And a lot of that has to do with Joseph being pretty incompetent on defense at this point, but Wright is genuinely a good defender who is like a playmaker on that end of the floor and a little bit, a little bit of a chaos creator. Yeah, absolutely. He was great tonight. I mean, uh, you look up at the box score, he's only got two points on from two free throws. He shot O of two from the field, but he had five assists four rebounds a steal. And what I thought was just some heck an amazing defense. Uh, for a Kings bench that really has struggled with guard defense aside from Tyrese Halliburton. So uh, that is a complete welcome sight. You know, it's weird. He got 23 minutes tonight and he only scored two points. And I feel like, uh, you know, there were quite a few nights where uh, the previous uh, bench guard had 23 points and I mean, 23 minutes and two points and we were all screaming our heads off. It just indicates just how dang good DeLone Wright was on defense tonight. Yeah, um, I think that I'm shocked to see only one steal in here. There were po- probably a couple deflections that aren't listed in this box score I'm looking at as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's extremely smart on that end of the floor, very active. He still has, you know, I think it's what we expected of Kojo. And Kojo just kind of lost a mm-hmm. step. And yeah. Wright still has that at his age. Um so yeah, I mean, I'm extremely and happy he's with him. He's a little him. taller and a little longer, which is a benefit. Definitely, yeah. I was surprised when I was doing my research on the guys that Wright is actually a inch taller than Terrence Davis. But you're still because of those guys. I think that whenever one of Davis or Wright is on the floor, and then obviously Heald, Halliburton, Fox, those are still three guard lineups. Like these are still yeah. while they're they could be classified as wings, I guess. Like they're still three guard lineups when it comes to size. And I think that Wright is the one that you're seeing getting a lot of minutes with the starters and it looks like the bench unit, you know, is, is Wright Davis, Harkless, Metu, and then 
they're like playing with who's going to be the fifth guy. And maybe it just rotates, you know, and that's the way that you manage a, what do they have? Eight man rotation, right? Is for a little while, it's just Halliburton. And then once Fox has gotten that rest for a little while, you're able to put Fox back in there. But I think it, it can't be only Buddy in my mind with those four. It needs to be one of Fox Halliburton or Harrison Barnes, preferably one of the, um, one of those primary initiator guards. I agree with you, but I do want to point out that there was about a four minute stretch in that fourth quarter when the Kings really pulled away where the lineup was Halliburton, Buddy Heald, Terrence Davis, Mo Harkless, and Rashawn Holmes, yeah. which just on paper seems like a crazy dang lineup, and it worked. So all the props to – I mean, I, I – I, I'm, I don't envy Luke Walton having to integrate all of these players. And for the first time, it feels like he's got actual depth and a kind of a logjam, especially at the at the two-guard spot. But, man, he made it work tonight. Totally did. And I think Harkless is interesting to me. I hope – and that yeah. Robert Woodard is given an opportunity in those minutes. Um, and obviously I'm a little bit of a Woodard homer, I guess, but I'm not convinced that Harkless is a plus on the defensive end of the floor. We're going to need to see more from him, but he wasn't really getting any run during his time in Miami. Um, I'm pulling it up here, but I want to say he played his first one, two, three, four, five, six games for them. And one of those games is eight seconds. And four of the other ones are less than 10 minutes. Um, there's only been one, two, three, four occasions this year where he's played 10 minutes or more in Miami. So there's not really back-to-back games since January for him. So I do give him the benefit of the doubt right now that there could be some rust, and he's also getting worked into a new system and everything. Um, But I'm not confident in his ability on the defensive end of the floor. And if he's not bringing anything on that end, um, I I think we know from his past that he's not exactly an impactful offensive player. You just hope he can hit his three-pointers on catch and shoots. And he did that tonight, to his credit, um, three of four from deep. But I would guess that this is – a little bit of not the usual for Harkless um, yeah. on, on the good side. So I'm still skeptical of him, um, but we'll see. Yeah, I agree with you that you can't go in expecting Mo Harkless to have 13 points on three or four shooting from deep on a regular basis. Um, and like you, I would start hedging my bets. Uh, Robert Woodard should get the Mo Harkless minutes in a couple of games. Um, but he was good tonight. Maybe he'll have one of those. I mean, how many players have a little run when they get to a new team where they have two, three weeks of uh, tricking their new fans into thinking, boy, this guy can really actually be a meaningful player for us. Oh, no, not really. So, you know, there's going to be a certain plateau uh, that all these um, new additions hit and uh, even out as uh, the King's life settles into them. So, I'll take the good for right now while we have it and uh, really do hope that Robert Woodard gets some of these minutes some night. Yeah, and I think it was someone on Twitter quote tweeted uh, 
when I had mentioned, you know, I really hope Harkless doesn't take Woodard's minutes and said, well, you know, counterpoint, hopefully Harkless isn't beating out Woodard in practice, um, which I thought was a really good point. And, and then put a little more thought into it. I'm like, well, these guys aren't really practicing this year Yeah, with how weird the whole COVID season has been. Um, so, yeah, should be interesting. And, and hopefully – uh, Woodard is given some opportunity because I can't I can't tell you enough if if Woodard was in those Harkless minutes uh, I would think I would really enjoy most of the lineups actually which is weird to say yeah. for what has been this year of Sacramento basketball yeah I yeah, I honestly enjoyed every lineup that I saw on the court today um, I can't really speak to the Cavaliers game I only caught the last five minutes but. Um, today, everybody was competitive. Everybody was fiery. Everybody went out there and wanted this win from the get-go. And, um, I mean, honestly, that's a massive improvement from a King's bench of a couple month, a couple weeks ago. So. so I hate to ask this question, but I feel like we have to. How much of it has to do with Bagley not being on the floor? <laughs> it's kind of funny how much I didn't think about Bagley in the last 48 hours. It's really weird to think about that. Um, I think things are smoother without him. Oh, yeah. I mean, we always knew that they were going to be. Um, I mean, even even at our most optimistic for Bagley, we always knew, and I've said this since before he was drafted, Marvin Bagley is a complex player on both ends of the court who you really have to both structure and on a game-to-game basis, set your team up to work with. He's always been that guy. He was in college. He was his rookie year. He was this year. So now you have one of the more complex fits out of the lineup. Not one of those guys that's going to sit here and say that the Kings are going to be better off if they let Marvin Bagley go this summer or they trade him, I guess. You can't really just let him go because there is still a part of me that does believe that the Kings will have a higher potential long-term if they really can optimize a dude with Bagley's innate scoring instincts. But it's, it, you can't, you can't not say that it's going to be easier in the immediacy just to have much more plug and play energy bigs and getting those minutes, smoother lineups, more spacing. So, and, and of course, as we've talked about a bajillion times, significantly easier to handle having a starting lineup with just one bad defender instead of two. So, And I think the whole, like you mentioned, you know, needing to tailor both your offense and defense around Bagley idea revolved around him being good enough to be a focal point. And I'm just not sure that that's the case anymore. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. definitely not saying I'm against developing Bagley or anything, but I think it's not a coincidence that things feel more smooth with him not on the floor. Um, and, and I don't think that should be too surprising either. Even if he comes either. back to the team, yeah, even if Bagley comes back to the team this year, which honestly is very much up in the air considering that he's not even with the team right now, which is very weird and not a great look for him. Um, even if he comes back to the team this year he doesn't get his starting spot back under no circumstances. The Kings are finally starting and giving huge minutes to their death lineup. Don't take that away from them. 
Yeah, I tweeted the other day. Um, I was just randomly realized, like, wow, we're not going to see Tyrese Halliburton come off the bench for a long time. <laughs> never like, again. Yeah. I, ever, I, ever pretty again. Pretty much. Pretty much. Um, and his running mate, the backcourt of the future, De'Aaron Fox, has been ridiculous. You mentioned player of the week. Over that week, not including the game against San Antonio, four games, he averages 36.8 points, five and a half assists, two steals on 64% from the field, which includes 73.8% from two, 37.5% from three on six attempts a game, and maybe the best part, 82.8% from the free throw line on seven in th- 7.3 field free throw attempts a game. Blowing it up. Absolutely ridiculous. And it's worth noting, not good defenses he's playing. I think Fox has for a while now been a guy that destroys bad defenders. I think of John Morant, his showdowns with John Morant in John Morant's rookie year. It was like he knew that he could take advantage of him, and I think there was a little bit of hype to the matchup as well, obviously, that made him up his play a little bit. But Colin Sexton, Damian Lee, no chance. Those guys stand no chance. And the fact that Fox recognizes that, which I think a lot of people are able to recognize. Yes, exactly. I think a lot of players are able to recognize this, but Fox, for him to be able to so effortlessly just go get a bucket every single possession against those guys, still an awesome accomplishment. But I'm going to need to see a little bit of progress against good defenses. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Spurs are a really good defensive team. They are. They are. And he did a – yeah, he did a really solid job against this San Antonio team as well. Um, and, and he's had good games against – good defenses. I just think that that's where the consistency needs to up. I think of the not most recent Philly game, obviously, but the one before that during their seven of eight game stretch, and then they ended up losing the eight of ninth, but that Philly loss almost felt like one of those best games of that stretch where they went really close with that team, and he was giving it to um, ben Simmons, he in during that stretch, he was going at Kawhi Leonard. So, like, he's done it for sure. But that's where the consistency needs to come from, in my mind, against good defenses. And that's going to take time. Um, but, yeah, like you said, San Antonio, good defense, 24 points tonight, 9 of 18 from the field. He's continuing good free throw shooting, 4 of 5 from the line tonight. Um, had two blocks, apparently. I, I don't remember those happening, to be honest. Um, but there's two steals, five assists in there as well. Yeah, at all. I don't remember one of them. But I think that the conversation needs to happen again. Um, or I want to get your thoughts. You know, when been on uh, ESPN 1320 a couple of times, shout out D-Lo and Casey. You do an absolute phenomenal job with that show. I think you and I tune into that like every single day. It's phenomenal. It's great background while I'm working. Um, every day. They every do great. Day, day. Yeah, they're they're phenomenal. But Kenny has been asking a lot of people if Fox can be the number one guy because he feels like they need a number one. And I don't know if Kenny's thoughts on this have developed in the last few weeks. But to me, I feel really confident saying Fox can be a number one guy on a conference championship caliber team. 
you need good complementary pieces, but I think I that he can be the number one guy on an offense. Are you there with yeah, that? I completely agree. Okay. I completely agree with you. I think it's really dang obvious that Sacramento's problem isn't that they lack a top scoring option. That's Darren Fox. The problem with Sacramento has just been a complete lack of real depth in in strong NBA talent. Um, and when you don't have a strong NBA depth around you, you have to be some kind of generational offensive talent to really drag a bad team to success on a nightly basis. And I feel like how bad the Kings, or okay, not just bad, but inconsistent the Kings have been, have really hidden how dang amazing De'Aaron Fox has been all year. The growth in Fox this year is the single most awesome thing that could have happened to the Kings. And there is no doubt in my mind that once this team adds another forward, adds another big man, gets another couple of depth pieces, maybe trades a couple of existing guys to get one more, uh, you know, a, a, a third, I don't want to say starish player, but, you know, a, a, to get a three-headed monster of De'Aaron Fox, Tyrese Halliburton, and blank. There's no doubt in my mind that De'Aaron Fox can be a guy who leads this team in scoring and makes them a very, very good team in the Western Conference. No doubt in my mind. Um, and just to loop back to a conversation you and I were having two months ago, you think De'Aaron Fox likes playing in the starting lineup with Tyrese Halliburton? Absolutely. I, I think go every to- player loves playing with Tyrese Halliburton. Yeah, yeah, but De'Aaron Fox especially. Like there was one play tonight where um, I was, no- oh, well, okay, Tyrese Halliburton's bringing the ball up the court. And De'Aaron Fox just whipped around the court. Went from one end to the other, found himself semi-open for a corner three, and I'm just thinking, like, okay, that's why De'Aaron Fox will want to play with another ball handler. Yeah. And it just reminded me of all of those people who, once it became clear that Tyrese Halliburton was going to be a dang good <laughs> player, were like, okay, it's time to trade De'Aaron Fox. Yeah, yeah it was a little, just little premature. <laughs> shake any of them and be like, yeah. He's averaging, what did you say, was 36 points in Halliburton entered yeah. the starting lineup? Yeah, 36 and 5 on stupid splits. Yeah. The future is now. I've, I could not love this backcourt for the next decade any more than I do. Yeah. And so I want to revisit the deadline because I think that – you know, I recorded one thing a couple of days ago before the San Antonio game, and sadly the audio sort of got lost before it made it to the podcast feeds. But it was kind of reevaluating the the Monty McNair's first trade deadline, and I think we, we were very disappointed, or I'll say I was, and I think it's clear that Tim was as well, very disappointed that there was no big move made. And I think, at least for myself, a lot of it had to do with just excitement and anticipation of a big changeup. And for that not happening was pretty disappointing. Um, And, you know, once I got a little bit more time to think about it, I realized that I probably sounded a bit too negative on that pod. 
Um, and, and there is, you know, I think two key factors in this. One, obviously, the home situation. But I think, I, I like to think that McNair understands what home's market is, that they've had that conversation of the four-year, 45 bird rights. And, you know, maybe, and this is me giving benefit of the doubt, just to be on the optimistic end of it this time, maybe they've already had a somewhat verbal agreement there. Um, and that's not to say a team can't come in and blow blow that offer out the water. But, you know, maybe there's something there. And the Barnes thing is still, or I'm sorry, the Holmes thing is still up in the air. But I think the other primary factor that really I've been questioning recently is I've been saying, and I believe this is the same for you, correct me if I'm wrong, that the Kings need a second guy. They need a number two. And the draft is the way to do that, right? And that's another factor. I'm starting to question if I am not considering Halliburton as potentially that number two guy because of how I felt about him coming out of the draft, and I'm not considering enough the things that we've already seen from him that were not expected in the reason that he was given the low ceiling title. I'm wondering if I'm still holding on to that too much. Do you think there's something there? Like, do you think Halliburton can be that number two guy? You know, I wrote this in my draft evaluation of Tyrese Halliburton, where I think even if I go back now and I reread everything I wrote, I was very much trying to couch my own optimism with what I considered a realistic look at his strengths and potential outcome in the NBA. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about everything uh, multiple times that we were worried about him. He wasn't a great individual shot creator at Iowa State. Um, he wasn't a great shooter off the bounce. Um, but even while pointing all of that out, I had a very specific point there that for a guy who is just as dang much of a basketball genius as anybody that we could have watched in that draft, there is nothing that he couldn't do. There's no ceiling on a guy with those kind of basketball instincts. Now, I would never in my wildest dreams expected Tyrese Halliburton to emerge as the shot creator that he has his rookie season. I don't know if I'm still sitting here just trying to hold back my own optimism, like you said. I still struggle to celebrate as a 20-point-per-game score at the next level. I mean, at this level. He's at this level. What am I saying? But it's not out of the question. It's not out of the question, which just feels insane to me to be saying right now. Um, I would still hope that the Kings go out there, really push for another star here, one that they know is a kind of a 20-point-per-game guy, one who fits in a hyper-offensive system like this. But I agree with you. The door's wide open for Tyrese Halliburton to be the second star on this day. It feels feels crazy to say that. It really does. Right. He's averaging 
13, 5, and 3 right now, 48% from the field, 43% from three, 86% from the line. He's already had seven games this year of his total 40, 40 total that he has broken 20 points. Um, I don't think I ever would have possibly guessed that. And I think the main thing, like you said, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, something that is going to place a ceiling or be factored into a ceiling is this lack of athleticism, right? But the, like you said, otherworldly basketball IQ is going to more than make up for it. Um, and the off the dribble shooting is, is just clearly like what does it for me. I, to me, it was like, I, I don't see how he ever creates for himself. And like, for example, the highlight obviously of that golden state game was he broke Damian Lee step backed, and he has a super quick release. It's really low, but it's really quick. Yeah. Um, so he gets it off. He doesn't need much space. He gets it off very quickly. And then it was a four point play. Um, and shot creation flashes like that make me be like, wow, I think this guy could be the number two. And I think that if I believed he was the clear number two guy and felt like I was looking for a number three rather than a number two, I would understand McNair's deadline more. And I get that if you if he is thinking in that logic, I could understand it. You get where I'm yeah. at with that? You know, I do. Um, a lot like you, I've been really kind of reevaluating my own um, initial deadline reactions. Um, I'm not quite as massively pessimistic uh, on the on the pathway that the Kings are going after the deadline because. I mean, McNair has said it in every interview he's done since then that he really feels himself a, a value trader where he goes out and he just makes the the value swaps. Um, and it's incredibly clear to me that Monty McNair isn't a dude who's going to take a deal that he feels is bad in any capacity. A um, whole bunch of smart people after the trade deadline their reason for optimism was, well, we can't sit here and say, I wish that Monty McNair had done X, Y, Z, when we just have no dang idea what Boston offered for Harrison Barnes. We have no idea what Toronto offered for Rashawn Holmes. We have no idea what any of these dudes actually got in terms of trade offers. So it's hard to sit there and be like, because you, I, and our buddy Tim, who was on during our trade podcast, we were all very much looking for the clear directional move. Um, and I'm still a little I, – I, I still would have liked to see the Kings do something more substantial at that one. But I think I'm only pessimistic on it now because this gap year – the most perfect year ever to swing for either a tank or a win now season ends with me really having no idea what the long-term plan is. Like you and I are sitting here saying, does Monty McNair think of Tyrese Halliburton as the two? Uh, I, he could be, but we don't have any idea based on what they've done other than get him into the starting lineup. 
Um, and the team didn't really make a win move other than really develop the bench, which I feel like a lot of smart people would say was the King's biggest weakness. So why isn't that a win now? But it kind of is. Um, so in the absence of knowing exactly what moves he turned down, I can understand why some people are willing to be more optimistic about this deadline. And I've certainly uh, found more Zen in the last four days in terms of, all right, this team is clearly clearly wasn't going to make any big home run swings unless Monty McNair was absolutely comfortable with the deal he was making. He's really gambling on an improved bench, adding three more NBA-level players to replace the youngsters developing guys and jettisoning Corey Joseph. He was really gambling on that being a substantial move forward to a team that wants to compete for a play-in spot. And we can argue all day long if that's really the right move moving forward. But I won't, I'm not going to hold it back on any Kings fan that just wants to enjoy some dang basketball. And tonight was the perfect example of a more competitive, deep Kings team winning a game that they needed to win if they want to pretend they're a playoff team. So I'm, I'm just, I'm here for the ride now. It is what it is. Half game out of that 10 seed. Half game out of the 10 seed, which is crazy, which is crazy. Insane to think about. Yeah. And I'll say um, my kind of final thoughts or updated thoughts, I guess, on the deadline. You know, the risk is losing homes for nothing and you don't have the money to pay for them, right? Yeah, Um, absolutely. But again, you know, maybe there's an understanding of the market that obviously we just don't have that sort of ability to gauge as McNair and, you know, if he's communicating with Holmes and his agent and such um, are able to have potentially at this point. But I think, you know, if in a vacuum, which I understand that isn't how NBA teams should operate, but I think that we've been shown that McNair is a smart guy, right? And, Yep. Each one of these moves, Cabin Jelly even, you made $2 million for nothing. You know, for a TPE that was going to expire the day after. Um, Corey Joseph and two second round picks. The Lakers second round pick, which I think is 55th right now, whatever, right? That pick, in my mind, honestly didn't matter. They had three second round picks this year. And a 2024 second rounder. I think that's like a very clear, good move. Um, and I don't think anybody was arguing against that. Um, but, you know, I think that next season, going into the soft season, they were going to be in a position where they needed to look for a backup point guard. And they weren't going to have much money to work with. And now they have that guy. And they may even, you know, be able to keep the lawn right after that. So they were going to need a backup point guard. And now they've solved that. The Bielitsa move, um, I think that... The idea the whole time was like, I just don't want to lose Bielita for nothing. And they got something. You know, I think there's a real good chance that Bielita could have just gotten bought out. And, yeah, maybe Chris Silva ends up being something on whatever about Mo Harkless, but potential, you know, locker room guy and and fill some minutes as we're kind of seeing. But I think not losing Bielita for nothing is a positive. And then I think that if you're looking at the Memphis 2021 pick, 
which was the only thing traded for Terrence Davis and is currently sitting at the 47th pick. I think Terrence Davis as a player being the 47th overall pick is a phenomenal outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for a Kings match that really, really needed his kind of scoring punch. Yeah, and only in a second I mean, year. He showcased tonight exactly why they needed him. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel I'm still, you know, the the home situation this offseason is going to say a lot about how this deadline really went over. Um, but if they are able to retain homes, I mean, it's hard to not say that McNair did a good job with Merck working on the margins and, like, you said, and, and because McNair has said it a bunch himself, is going for value moves and taking advantage of situations where other teams are maybe a little desperate. Like I get the impression that Terrence Davis and they did it with Matt Thomas as well in Toronto was clearing spaces to be able to take four for one deal that I think Toronto probably thought was going to happen and then ended up falling through um, for Kyle Lowry. That's what I'm talking about there. Um, yeah, DeLon Wright was clearly on the trade block and available for a very low price with the situation that Detroit's in right now. So for them to get anything in in return and only ship out second rounders, I think that McNair is showing he's going to do a good job of working on the margins or at least, yeah, potential too. You know, I mean, I think it's, it's an upgrade over, like, I don't think you would have seen Vlade do these types of marginal value moves. No, no. I, yeah. I completely agree. So I think the uh, last thing we'll touch on here is, boy, this Kings schedule is going to be a little tough the next uh, week and a half. Um, they got to face these same Spurs again on Wednesday in San Antonio. Uh, we'll see if the Spurs are little, any more ready than they were tonight. Uh, then the Kings got an absolutely wicked back-to-back home series against uh the Lakers and the Bucks. So shouldn't the Saturday. Lakers not have um, Braun and um AD though? Oh, I keep forgetting that the Lakers aren't the Lakers right I now. I think the Lakers kind of suck right now. No, it's funny. It's so easy to <laughs> It's so easy to immediately stop watching Laker games as soon as LeBron and Davis aren't on there that I forgot that LeBron was still injured. All right, well, maybe that one's not going to be hard. I will never uh, not celebrate a a victory over (laughs) the Lakers. Um, Minnesota and Detroit uh, next week ain't too bad, uh, but then at Utah, at New Orleans, uh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of games on this schedule that the Sacramento Kings need to win if they really want to prove themselves a not just a contender for that play for that play in tournament, but an actual contender to win the play in tournament and get a playoff seed. So we'll see who the real Kings are over the next couple of weeks. Definitely. I think a lot of it rides on the shoulder of Darren Fox, obviously. And during that poor stretch of games this year after their little winning streak, I think his level of forcefulness and I don't want to say effort, but really like will on each and every possession started to fade a little bit at times. And he just looked a little down as did a lot of the team, you know, somewhat understandably. 
But I think that if Fox is able to, you know, give you 20 and seven a night and then have occasional 30 point outbreaks, you know, one every three games sort of thing, like it's just going to be all about his energy to me. Um, and he's playing against teams where he's going to be really capable. I think I'm past the point where I think that the Kings are going to give themselves good odds for a top five pick. So at this point, like, <laughs> give me everything you can to a play in. Give me everything you can. You know, they're at 12 odds right now, which, by the way, Tank Afton has them taking Franz Wagner, and I'm in love with that pick. And Moses <laughs> Moody's going 13 Franz on Wagner this, by the, the way. So. <laughs> Yeah, if yeah, if we're that. sitting there on draft night getting to pick between Franz Wagner and Moses Moody <laughs> and they made the play-in game, I think we are going to have a celebration, Brian. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's <laughs> aside from spectacularly sweeping into a top four uh, lottery seat just on the backs of the basketball gods telling them that they did right by avoiding tanking. Uh, there's no better outcome for me than Moses Moody still sitting here? Franz Wagner still sitting here? I think you imagine. Like, okay, one one last note. It, everybody who's listening to this should go watch Gonzaga play USC tomorrow. Oh, yes. Just That's tomorrow? Oh, yes. I, I don't care if if the Kings are too far out of the lottery odds to have a realistic shot at Evan Mobley or Jalen Suggs. Go watch that dang game. It's going to be phenomenal. Definitely. And we're going to get out of here and catch the end of this Arkansas-Baylor game, which isn't looking too hot for Moses Moody right now. We've only got about 30 seconds left. Nope. And Arkansas is down nine. Um, but it's March Madness for a reason. I guess anything is possible. Um, but, yes, that's going to do it for this episode of the Kings Pulse Podcast. Definitely check out all the work going on at the King's Herald. You've been putting out great March Madness coverage and the rest of the guys there doing their thing as they always do. Great content there all the time and support the Patreon to support local independent Kings coverage. If you enjoyed this episode of the King's Bulls podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And you'll hear from us again in the next couple of days here.